You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. Welcome back to another playoff edition. My name is Ben. And short of me going on many Milwaukee Bucks rants to start the show, let's just let's just jump right in and introduce uh, someone who I've followed kind of a I mean, you're kind of a legend, right? You've been around for a while. Um, formerly, you know, I guess still you still do true hoop stuff, right? You're you're yeah. still writing with Henry. Yeah. So um, true hoop. uh coach trainer extraordinaire motivational speaker um unofficial psychologist to to all his players david thorpe thanks for coming on oh thanks ben yeah so i i uh when we left espn in 17 uh 19 i gotta think about this now 17 and then um in 2019 henry abbott and i partnered up yep. uh with one other person to open up true hoop again espn gave us the gave him the name back and he invited me to come be a partner with him. So, yeah, we're writing a newsletter, you know, two or three a week, doing podcasts twice a week. Um, it's been amazing. Yeah, I've covered the game now since 07 on the media side and been coaching players for, you know, three decades now. So I was thinking about this because I'm super big into history. Did you were you like a fan of the 70s NBA? Were you growing up? Were you always into basketball at that point or did it take a little while before you became a lifer? You know, I never get asked that question. It's such a great question. I love it. I'm happy to talk about it. So my dad went to the Citadel, and the best player they saw play at the Citadel when he was there was a player that played on West Virginia's team named Jerry West. So I don't know why, but for some reason he became my favorite player when I uh, was aware of the of NBA basketball in the mid-'70s. I was born in '65. And became a Laker fan. I also love the color purple, although I don't really know. Maybe it was because of Jerry West. I'm not sure. I wrote I wrote poems about Jerry West. Wow. Clutch shooting. Yeah. I, wow. I, but yeah. but he retired in like 74 off the top of my head. Right. So. Um, it, yeah. So you. Yeah. Maybe that's right. You, yeah, you kind of caught but, his caught his end of his career and maybe yeah, his coaching I mean, I, career. It wasn't on much. Right. So yeah. then. So then I wa- in 79, I watched uh, Bird versus Magic in the finals, rooted for Bird. But the Lakers drafted Magic, so he became my favorite player. I was 14. And uh, watched his – I literally – I was at – I was at well, – his name was Ron Cook. I was at Ron Cook's house when the very first game, Kareem hit like a 17-foot skyhook. Yep, against the, the Clippers. San Diego Clippers, yep, I believe. It was against the Clippers, yep. Uh, tape delayed. <laughs> I, I, we, at Ron's house, they had a little sister, and she had an easy-bake oven, so we made little easy-bake cakes. I was, you know, I was a high school freshman, probably. And now he's Dr. Ron Otten from the CDC. He's a brilliant guy, but back then, he was just my buddy down the road. He lived like six houses down. And I was a huge Laker fan. I loved Norm Nixon. For some reason, I was able to, to imitate. I could, uh, and now I realize why. I always had the ability to see someone shoot the ball, and I could imitate it. So Jamal Wilkes had a very wild form. Norm Nixon had a little hesitant, like a, he would jump, hesitate, then shoot. 
I could imitate people's shots. So I would play Maurice Cheeks versus Norm Nixon in my front yard every day. Uh, I'd be Jamal Wilkes sometime, whatever. And so I was a huge Laker fan. Um, but you didn't. Had a Lakers, were you, where that, were you growing up at this point? So I, I grew up in Seminole, Florida, which okay. is pretty much on the Gulf of Mexico. Like I live five minutes away from beaches. Uh, and um, and then even in college, I was a Laker fan. This was the heyday of you know the, of the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. So um, that's when I really fell in love with the game. I watched. I mean, I've never missed eleven thirty tape delayed games on CBS. And then when ESPN hit, the games started coming around more frequently. Uh, I followed the Lakers whenever I could. I always watched the you know the playoffs. Never missed a game. Loved Worthy. The very first stuffed animal I gave my wife, who then girlfriend, was a little gun. G O N D. It was a little gun teddy bear, pink, and we named it Worthy. That tells you what kind of Laker fan I was. It was like '87. I was 22. Yeah, yeah. that's how long I go back with the game. Wow. No, that was amazing. And uh, this this is why you you've never been asked that question. We didn't talk about this before we started recording, and just like really cool anecdote. But also, so many people, myself included. So I grew up in Boston, and yeah. and at the end of the '80s, when I started to sort of you know cognitively come online, if you will, and like, oh, well, let's watch more sports. And who's that? It's like Magic. Magic was the guy. Um, and I I unfortunately like started to watch right when Bird's back went out. So uh, 89, he misses the whole season. So to me, Bird was just the guy who was like on the sideline. And I kind of had to learn about him from, you know, stories being passed down. And then finally with YouTube, or, it was really classic sports, ESPN classic sports when they oh, watched wow. that. Yeah. And they yeah. started they started playing those old games. I got to see Bird before he was injured because after his back injury, I'd go to the garden and see him play. And one of the craziest things you, you hear fans now talk about load management right oh I, I pay big money i go to the game and my star doesn't play that was my childhood because bird would just <laughs> randomly sit out games with a bad back and i missed like half the time i went to the game he wasn't there so um anyway i loved bird i, I hated him as a laker fan but uh, strictly uh because of the jersey he was wearing like i was a huge bird fan i loved him at indiana state and um i used to know the song and they there was a song Have you ever heard the larry bird song at indiana state uh, I feel like I have. Yes, it's got. You can find it on YouTube. I yeah. used to know it. I was a big Bird fan. I just liked Magic and Lakers a lot more. And um, Bird was, yeah, just a magnificent. I, in fact, I have one. But I've coached over eighty NBA players. I have none of their pictures in my office. I have I, in my office, which is next to my house. I have one photo that I bought in Sausalito, just outside San Francisco in California. My wife and I took a trip there. It's right over my shoulder here behind me in my office of Magic and Bird um, next to each other free throw line. Like they represented the NBA for me, the, their passing, their zeal for the game, their love for the game. Magic was all smiles. Bird was more smoldering intensity, not always so smoldering. Um, they represented to me the yin and yang of what I thought was the great game. And and then I started coaching and and really understood and appreciated just how good they were. Yeah. And in, and in making my greatest peak series last year yeah. go, going back and, and getting into these players and breaking down their games, that yin yang comment you just made, that's, yeah. that's what stood out to me. It's like magic and bird were so similar in so many regards. And yet magic, and you could go back to Oscar Robertson, right? This, yeah. this like quarterbacking on ball kind of so much of his value is I have the ball. It's an extension of my hand. And if you give it to me, I'm going to drive things and make great decisions. Right. And Bird was so much about like, 
I can run around and create this value by moving and I touch it. I touch it quickly. I'm going to get right into my shot. I'm going to make one move and pull up. I'm going to pass. And just the similarities, but almost doing it on like opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, yeah, I could, I could, and have been known to pontificate about those guys for hours on end. So, all right, let's, let's, let's talk about this year's playoffs. Yeah. Um, right out of the gate, like what, what jumps out to you? What's here we are just to put a stake in the ground for people when they listen to this, we are done with um, Phoenix. We're done with Phoenix. And then the other series are Milwaukee's heading to game seven. And the other two series game six is tonight, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and the Clippers versus uh, the jazz. What's sort of the biggest thing on your mind right now? I mean, I think everyone would say the, the spate of injuries, and I, I tweeted yesterday or maybe a couple of days ago that uh, we, we've dealt with this before. Like we, we're used to seeing injuries. It, almost every year there's something. I, I don't know that this isn't – it probably is the worst, the, the most injuries. Uh, no surprise. And so you know, LeBron now mentions that he knew this was coming. We've been riding a troop about this. Like this is always – this was always going to be the case uh, that um, – we're going to have more injuries than ever with all these games in so few, uh, you know, weeks. And you know, you you made a comment about load management and and de- dealing with Bird. It's been it's been it's been challenging for me to come uh, all the way around on this subject because I am an old school coach in the sense that I'm 56 and all of that. But I I'm really very open always to science and technology and and data. And I'm starting to embrace the two games a week the idea. More than ever before, I actually have some. I may probably publish my vision of what I think this could be, which is a combination of NBA games and then also G League games in the same arena, uh, uh, where you move young players up and down based on like almost like JV varsity in a sense, based on who you're going to play and who's not feeling good. I, I just think we'll have our stars more. I, I know, I know we will, and so I think we'll make up the if we play a 60 game schedule. I'm making this up. Um, we'll make up the lost revenue of those, of those home games, which is more people watching better ratings, more highlights, which is, you know, more, more cell phones in China running the YouTube clips of these great plays because we'll have more of them playing. And, um, uh, I think that to me is the biggest thing is that, and then the other part would be the, you know, the astonishing talent. Like we've got, think about this. So we were just talking about games in the eighties and the seventies a little bit. Giannis and Kevin Durant would be destroying those teams like no one ever destroyed there's seven foot guys that are guards one can shoot one can't but they would absolutely kill the the illegal defensive rule where you couldn't even help until the ball crossed the free throw line Giannis is already dunking the ball when he's going downhill from 25 feet he's already dunking it before when you can send help so the astonishing level of talent Trey Young just brilliant brilliant player um so, yeah, I, 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 every morning I try to watch some synergy clips of what happened the night before just so I can be reminded on a daily basis of the, of the talent we're talking about here. Yeah, I, I mentioned this last week on the show. I think we are – I haven't double-checked it, but we certainly had the most like 30-point either per game or per 75 possession scores after the first round. And then sometimes – guys keep playing and their scoring averages go down, right? So I don't know where that will be. But just the number of high-end, just huge uh, stat production accumulation guys right now, I think is the most we've ever had in a single 
postseason. And that always that segues me into a topic I've really been noodling on for a while, which is the trend toward offense. The the average offensive rating in the postseason is still over 115. Um, in the regular season, it ended in the 112s. But as I've mentioned, the last month of the year was like 114. And it's not unheard of for the postseason to have a, a higher offensive efficiency than the regular season. It usually goes down a little bit. It's rare, but it does happen. For instance, in like, I know 1992 off the top of my head, it bu- bumped up to like 110 or 111 or something. But in conjunction with just the per points per points per possession efficiency spike that we're seeing, we're seeing stuff that goes with that, like the Nets not really playing any traditional big people. Um, the Clippers now, right, are also embracing a lineup that doesn't really have any traditional big men, where most of the guys on the court in the old days or even like five years ago would be small forwards at best. Right. And, just, and just kind of floating these lineups without bigs. So what do you what do you think about this direction? Part of me feels like D'Antoni, if we go back to the seven seconds or less sons, right, D'Antoni, he wasn't the first to do it back. Let's go back to the 70s because we mentioned him. Um, Dr. Jack. Yeah. With, with Buffalo. He said, we're going to play Bob McAdoo at center. We're going to slide everything up. We're going to sacrifice a little defense. D'Antoni did that. Now I feel like they're leaning in even more. They're like, what if we just play? Hear me out. What if we just play no big people and we'll see if we don't really get burned that badly on defense? And now we've got so much skill shooting second. I mean, who's the Clippers center? Is it like Batum? Because Nick Batum's like a very skilled basketball player and he can shoot and he can pass, and he can make decisions. Uh, if you trap somebody, and you and you, he becomes a secondary outlet valve. You just put five players on the court like this, and the offense has such an advantage. So, I mean, I've been talking for a while. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what do you think about this direction, and what do you think about the success at least two prominent teams are having with it right now? Well, so when you talk about the Clippers, you know, the we, we call them, we say it going small because there's no seven-footer on the court, right? But Reggie Jackson's the shortest guy of that group that's been really playing well. I think he's got a seven-foot wingspan. So we are, they are freakishly, freakishly big and long <laughs> as a small group. Right, right. You know? That's why so, I say, I'm careful to say no traditional bigs because right. i mean paul george is paul george is a pretty tall dude he's, he's like six foot ten right yeah exactly. yeah 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 he would yeah paul george in the 70s mvp every year every year mvp like these guys are so much better than everyone uh, it, uh nobody guarded anyone in that league until they got to 15 feet why would you, you know, there was the, no three-point line yeah the whole idea of a hand yeah. check the hand check is a myth no one was guarding anyone watch the tapes i have when you start driving, they might hit you a little bit. They do that now. Nothing's different. Um, I think that, well, first of all, there's probably going to be some rule changes to help defense a little bit. But um, we probably need to. It's, uh, there's just too many good players with so much skill. And then with the really big thing is, like in the fourth quarter last night, I may be wrong. Maybe, we'll, maybe one of them in the third quarter. But I think Trey Young may have hit three bombs in the fourth quarter of like 28 feet beyond. Well, they were getting killed, and, that, he, and he did it. That and was it prevented them from really losing. Yeah, that was two nights ago, wasn't it? Yeah, two nights ago. Yes. Right, and that's like yes. so, I have so, the same yeah, time all, vortex problem in these playoffs. Like, yeah, they all I, run together. Yeah, it's it, no uh, every game. I'm like, wait, the Bucks played last night. That was a month yeah. ago. Um, right, right. So yeah, I mean, just we have a lot of guys that can shoot from way far out, and um, uh, and so now you have all this space. And so I wrote about on Troop about a, two months ago. 
Oh, no, I wrote more than that. It was during the NCAA Final Four that really quick guys uh, that can that can make that floater are, which is Mike Conley, are the future because you can't keep them out of the paint. Like Mike Conley had a phenomenal season this year because they have four, they have three shooters always. With Rudy Gobert leads the leads the NBA in dunks always, and Conley just lives in what I call the second box, which is the from the free throw line to maybe eight, nine feet forwards, he lives in that second box. You have to guard him from three. Other guys do too. He gets in the lane. He makes a little right-hand floater. Uh, Donovan's doing the same thing. It's one reason why the Jazz was so good this year. Uh, one of many. And so we have a lot of guys like that. And there's going to be more coming, not less. And Nikola Jokic has a floater too. Like these guys can – if the shot making I – would, I, would, I would put it this way. If the Beatles changed music – in the 60s, man, we got Beatles running everywhere now because there's so many brilliant, brilliant offensive talents. And if we and, and so the defense going to have to be allowed to do some things. I like the rule change they're proposing now where uh, I like the idea that if you if you initiate contact and the defender uh, isn't trying to foul you he's get, he, he, and you're running into him, whether it's your body or your shoulder, I want that to be an offensive foul. If you're penalizing the defense, they, they're helpless. I, I've been working on the other end for 10, 15, 20 years. Kevin Martin was one of my first ever students. I had Kevin lived in the free throw line. We took advantage of this. Right. He was super quick, super crafty. When in doubt, put your shoulder into him, get a foul call. He was great at it. Not everyone does it. Trey Young does this. So they'll get rid of that. That'll change things a little bit better for the defense. But I think what will end up happening is, and this is what I've been saying, I want to steal the team. If I was running a team... I want five guys. I want 80% of the guys in the court to be great shooters and 80% of the guys in the court to be great athletes. I don't care about size. In a way, I think that's kind of what the Clippers lineup is. Mm, They're just shooters, size, I mean, shooters and athletes. Who cares how tall they are? But we might one day see a bunch of 6'4 guys and then scheme up around that. If you got 6'4 athletes and shooters, trap more, harass more, pressure more, deny more, you'll get beat on the glass somewhat for sure. But even for just a couple of minutes to get tempo going, I think I think we're going to start seeing some more innovation that way. The the height is almost less of a thing to me. I mean, there have always been short centers. Wes Unseld probably yeah. was six 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 seven at best, right? right? But Wes Unseld was a tank. You yeah. know, he was a brick wall, and so it's not just about the height. Like Durant is the size of a traditional interior player, and. He does have some rim protection coming over, and that, and you know, when he's low man and stuff, he rotates and he can and he can block shots. And but a, you're not used to it if you're used to playing on the wing, you know. And b, in Durant's case, he's he's a, a tent pole, you know, he's like 220 pounds or yeah. whatever it is. So when yeah. he goes in there, and you got to put that's one thing that sometimes is hard to communicate. And you can speak to this working intimately with players and developing yeah. them, like. It, the way you move your hips and your body and the physicality down under the hoop, that's a real thing. Like displacing guys is a real thing. And I thought early in the series, I think it, I feel like at this point, the Nets, and you got to give them a lot of credit because they were working their tail off on defense to overcome some of these disadvantages. But at the beginning of the series, it's like Durant's got to block out Brooke Lopez. He's just like bear hugging him. What, what else can you do? Like he's just bear hugging him. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you in that it's less about the actual size about the guys that's standing out to me. It's more of this idea of, hey, we're going to put five guys out there. And the Clippers lineup looks a little bit more organic in that they're athletes, they're long, 
Paul George and Kawhi are big, physically strong dudes, right? Yeah. So, you know, h- how do you how do you defend that? Does that change the way we think about defensive schemes even? I think it does because I think too many teams are playing solidly, and I think that's what the offense wants. Like, for example, I would not try to guard Kevin Durant solidly. And what do you mean by solidly? Just so solidly physically? Is make sure make sure it doesn't blow by me. Make him shoot the jumper over me. Like he'll do that all night. Like, like no straight problem. up. He's like basically playing right. straight. Yeah. Okay. I like when Drew last night uh, harassed him, try to steal the ball from him, uh, run a second guy uh, fast. Don't run yes. over. Don't run a second guy over to trap and contain. Try to steal the ball. Make him. He's seven feet. He's really tall. The ball's got to go a long way. Make him worried he might lose the ball. And I think we need to get more into that psychological warfare of that against guys that size that are dribbling the ball. Uh, and you can do that with small, quick guy. That's why I think this, I think small's coming back really good. Um, to be fundamental against those guys is a is a mistake. That's where the Jazz having some issues. They're so fundamentally sound defensively, typically with Rudy at the rim. It's not working against all this skill for the Clippers. Here's a question: What is your daily personal care routine? Do you have a 12-step facial product regimen like I do? With Hawthorne, I've talked about them before on the show, you can get high-quality shampoos, body washes, soaps, deodorant. They even have luxurious sandalwood shaving gel. I am a big fan of the sandalwood, by the way, as an underutilized scent. Uh, And all those products are made without sulfates, parabens, and any harsh chemicals. Hawthorne uh, tailors your personal care routine to you. So you go online. You take a quiz. It's really fun. Uh, They ask you about hair length, uh, preferences of scents, and things like that. And then they give you a bunch of custom recommendations based on your needs and your preferences. So basically, that means looking good, feeling good, smelling good, all that stuff has never been easier. And you get free shipping on your order and your returns, head on over to hawthorne.co and use the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL. You'll get 10% off your first purchase there. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O, promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL. Check it out today. you get that 10% off. It's a great way to support the show. How do you feel about an, another kind of pet peeve of mine or thing that's just blown my mind over the last decade, even going back to Draymond and the Warriors? How do you feel about the inability now for teams to take advantage of the mismatch in the post? So much has changed about how how technical teams are defending the post. You know, we're going to front or three-quarter front and make sure the backside help is there. But, I mean, is the entry pass, is that just gone at this point? Is it a lost art? Because there are times where... I go back and spend the summer watching 90s games and you get a guy sealed on your back, good entry pass, it's easy money or a foul for a guy who's, you know, 6'10", 250 pounds versus the small. And in today's game, that rarely seems to be a thing, right? It's difficult to find those spots and they still look like they're there, but I don't know. It feels like maybe that's something you're not sacrificing anymore on defense when you go small. What do you think of that? I've always been a big believer in entry passes and passing in general being underrated. I've been coached a lot of players at the college level or high school guys that moved up to college. I always thought I I always had players that I thought were high major players that were overlooked uh, because they weren't really athletic, but they were brilliant shooters, passers. And they ended up, you know, typically going high major. They just weren't so quick to to impress as maybe my more athletic guys were. Um, But I mean, there was just 
a different defensive rule back then. It was easier to answer the ball in the post. You couldn't shade over as much, right? You couldn't shrink the court the same way. Uh, I do, I do have an opinion that uh, as someone who coached players back then too, uh, my first year of coaching, '87, was the first year the three-point line was put in high school. So I've only coached high school basketball with a three-point line rule, but we didn't use it as much. I probably used it more than most back then. Um, by 1990, Rick Pitino was recruiting my players. And so I followed Patino a lot. And he shot a lot of threes. And so my team shot threes more so than probably most. But um, I think that uh, our bigs want to work on shooting and ball handling to be better basketball players. Whereas back then, they might spend more of the time working on the jump hooks and up and under moves. But I also think our defenses are just better. Not just off the ball helping, but on the ball. Don't try to block the shot of the guy you're guarding. Make him shoot over you. He'll miss most. Right, especially if you get a little help pinched in from the top or the side. So uh, it's a mistake to try to block those shots, and then you get caught in the up and under, right? Uh, and so there's a reason why most of those guys don't exist, is it's just not very efficient, productive basketball anymore, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, one thing you also said, kind of related to what we're talking about, that ties back to at least the Bucks uh, net series, is, remind me what, 80% shooting and... The other rest is athleticism. What, what was your kind yeah, of? Yeah, eighty percent. I want eighty percent of my players, which is four players, mm-hmm. as, as, uh, being great shooters. Eighty percent being great athletes. Yep. So four of my players they have to be all four the same. You just have to be four of each. So to me, the one that I've always it's sort of when I think of team construction, I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book, the combination of shooting and passing, and the connection back to the Bucks for me, or even what we we're talking about with that dynamic with Durant and how he receives pressure from defenses. So many great teams in the history of the league, so many successful championship-type teams move the ball well. They have good passers, either primary passers or good extra passers, that connective tissue, right? That outlet valve kind of stuff. Um, I feel like Milwaukee is short on that, and it's hurting them in this series. What do you think about that? I mean, yeah, I think I said, I think passing is underrated. And I think, and, and so when teams are switching, the natural response on NBA offenses is to drive and attack the mismatch. And so I'm tracking teams passing. Like last night, Milwaukee threw 202 passes. Um, the first two games of the series, they threw 216. Uh, wait, 208. They threw 208 on average first two games. The Nets do over 300. Yeah. The, again, the Bucks ball movement, you know, when, when it comes down to it, and you're one point, when you're under two passes per possession or right around two passes right. per possession, whatever it is, that's typically really low. Yeah. Um, right. And that's where they are. Yeah. And, and yeah. so to me, you know, I've, I've certainly ranted about all the different things going on with the Bucks and their offense. And it's a weird series, right? Because it's, it's three, three. But it yeah. also it also feels like Milwaukee has just legitimately underperformed in many areas. And some of these connect to the larger conversation we're having about the direction of the game, right? Where I've, I think you'd agree. They need more primary playmakers. You need guys who can get in and, and carve up the defense. This is where Trey Young's having so much success. Like his skill set, Luka's skill set uh, for the last decade lebron james's skill set these guys that can get in and you can give them the ball in the 90s it was like 
this idea of you want to give someone the ball and have them be able to make a great ISO bucket or the, or the 2000s, that idea existed for a while. I feel like we've advanced past that to this. You need the guy to be a scoring threat and to be able to break down the D and make the right decision, right pick and roll read, whatever it is. And Milwaukee's just, they're just lacking that. They're lacking players at that, enough players at that level or the one guy at that level that can do that. Well, then you're missing Dante DiVincenzo Hurts, right? Drew Holiday isn't a sort of, I had Drew in the pre-draft years ago. He's a great player. I think sometimes he's too focused on being a game manager and not weaponized to score. And that's an issue for them. Um, if you, if you, like we're talking about who might take the Pelicans job, uh, I know that front office is really, um, keen on European style playing. So I watch a lot of the European, of European basketball and it's more tactics driven. It's more second side, third side, false motion, moving defenders, moving the ball, not, they just don't have James Harden to give the ball to. There's no James Harden's there compared to the NBA. So imagine if we could get our best players here playing like that. Now it's the best basketball in the world by far. Don't don't you think to a degree that's what's happened? You've we've had this innovation coming from other leagues where they don't just run the old hero ball offense, right? They don't just say like give it to the best guy and we can do X Y or Z because we have him. That that's been my impression from the last decade or two even back to, you know, we mentioned D'Antoni earlier, right? Like bringing over principles from lesser leagues. I don't watch as much European basketball as you do, but when I watch Europe, when I watch Australia, when I watch Israel, um I know people who coach in these leagues and I sometimes check in on their tape and it's like, "Oh, you came up with that idea because you don't have Giannis as right. an athlete, right?" Yeah. So it's it, it what you can't do, it helps you innovate, right? I, I tell the story all the time. I, I'm, I just helped this week a 13-year-old. I don't charge high school kids or middle school kids, but he's the son of one of my lifelong friends. He's serious about basketball. He lives in Miami. His dad said, you know, I want to take a, a week with my son for Father's Day and bring him to my buddy David Thorpe and just to breathe spirit in him as a basketball player. So we, But he's really curious in my, in my son, who's – who's now going to be a sophomore in college at Florida State, as a basketball player, he plays on the team there. And I was telling him one of the things my son had an advantage of is he started playing high-level AU in sixth grade, and he was a stud baseball player in travel baseball, and so everything was great. In basketball, he was the smallest kid on the court. And I taught him constantly, if you just make some threes, in sixth grade is not so easy, but he was a decent shooter in sixth grade, and keep getting the ball to our best player, like coach is going to keep playing you because I, w- I helped out a lot, but I wasn't a coach. I gave him an offense to run a defense to many offense. We ran three offense, three defenses uh, as, as main offense, three man offenses, three zone offenses. Like we were well prepared, but I didn't run the team. I just ran all that kind of shit. And what happened is my son developed a really amazing ability to get the ball to our best player. who was very, it was an all American. He was great. He's, he's a college player now. And, uh, and that carried over to him as he got better. And now he's six foot three and stronger and all these. He could still always get the ball to whoever he wanted to get the ball to because he had no choice. He wasn't going to play if he didn't keep getting the ball to our best player when he was in sixth grade. So weaknesses help develop innovation. Yes. Right. Yeah. Necessity. So as we start looking at the seven jobs open right now, maybe eight, if depending on what happens with Milwaukee, I think there's going to be at least some franchises looking at that who 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 can come from europe 
and bring more of a you got to get you got to get buy-in but can we get buy-in from our team to run a more european style we have some of phoenix does some stuff utah does some good stuff but i don't know that we do it as much as we can i don't think we do and i think that as that changes uh uh games will slow down a little bit there'll be more passes but it'll be a more beautiful game to watch and it'll be really hard for defenses to counteract for sure Let's jump back to the Jazz. Uh, I have a little note here about Mike Conley because he came up earlier. To me, to me, Utah is really feeling his absence in this sure. series, right? Uh, it, it, it plugs into everything we're talking about, having enough guys that can drive offense, be primary creators. Um, that second box you mentioned, his floater range, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, thoughts on just... Yeah that series at all or or i mean yeah. if he comes back how do we feel better about utah i feel good about them in absence of Connolly, uh but what do you think well donovan mitchell's health has really remains to be seen right where i don't know that he's got much left so so let's talk mike Connolly. one of the best offensive players in the league this year one of the best defensive guards in the league this year so they, just losing that is a killer right the most experienced player on their team in the playoffs that alone is huge he, he helps Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert a ton on the first group. But here's what no one's talking about. The bench lineup of Conley, Clarkson, yes. uh, uh, Niang, Ingles, yep. and Gobert yep. is a monster. It's their death lineup. They don't finish games with it, of course. But it destroys teams. And it hasn't played one second together in this series because Conley's been out. And so Niang's numbers have gone down. Ingles has struggled some. Derek Favors has really struggled. I, I'm, not, I'm sure he even played tonight. They might try Ilya Sova just to space the court some uh, because he has no, he's having no impact on the, the big wings from Clippers. But, yeah, so Conley, Conley's apps. It's amazing they've gone to six without him. It's amazing. Uh, and I was surprised they lost to a Kawhi-less team because Conley's their best player. That's a guard. Donovan's their most ex- exciting dynamic player. Gobert is the best all-around player. Conley is every bit as integral as Gobert, and he's not there. Yep, and and I feel like Utah in the past has lacked a certain amount of firepower, and now this year Mitchell's better, and they add Conley, and like those two pieces have been ripped away, especially after he hurt his ankle uh, in this right. series. Yeah, so yeah, Don, Donovan. There was a period of time where Donovan was the best player in the playoffs when he came back from his missing game one, and they won what is it, six straight games, he would, he might have been the MVP of the postseason at that point. He was extraordinary. How many guys have – this is, goes back to my, my comment earlier about top-end players. Like, how many players has someone said that about in these playoffs without, right. it, without it being an exaggeration? It's just like, right. oh, oh, look at what Durant's doing. Oh, no, wait, look at what Kawhi's doing. Oh, it's like six, seven, eight guys. Yeah, yeah, Luka. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, let's, yeah Luca went. They were three two. Yeah. Let's uh, let's quickly hit the the Hawks and the Sixers. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have much other than just sitting back and enjoying that series. Anything kind of standing out to you? Do you are you feeling good that Atlanta can close this out in one of the next two games? Or do yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought Atlanta. I thought Atlanta and the Clippers had great chance to win their last game. I wrote that. I thought. I thought um, Embiid's knee is troubling. Uh, as the yeah. game goes on, the pain doesn't get less. It gets worse, and yep. it's affecting him, I think. Uh, I think that Trey Young is magical as an offensive player. They, that, I, I think Nate McMillan has a, a really good uh, pace about him as he coaches, 
And so I think it's easy for them not to panic. It's a, he it, doesn't panic. It feels like a really good team for him in terms yeah. of the type of players he can deploy. Well, I talked about this on a different podcast today. Um, so he'll, he'll get you to guard. He'll get guys to care about defense on the ball, especially. What I think he's always lacked is real offensive innovation, but he doesn't need that. He's got Trey. Exactly. Fact, Trey yep. even said, he's letting me call plays. So I think it's the perfect situation because Nate will get buy-in. Teams will play hard. They'll share the ball. They're passing well. They'll defend and let Trey run on offense. MB's um, knee is troublesome. Um, Seth Curry has been dynamic. And I think the Hawks are really going to sit on him, try to squash him tonight, and then see if Tobias can – he didn't play well last game. He's been playing well until last game. Um, I think these are coin flip series, obviously. They're all, you know, game six and seven for a reason, right? And uh, uh, we're going to look for a narrative to describe things when in reality it might be a couple in and outs make a difference in a game, right? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one. I, I, I wrote a book about that once. Uh, yeah. Let it be known, by the way, that our friend – Dave Dufour, uh, when we previewed the playoffs this year on this podcast, mocked me for suggesting that Atlanta could give Philadelphia a difficult time. I don't know if he was mocking me because I was so dismissive of the Knicks or if it was be- just because <laughs> of the... Atlanta, I had Atlanta being the Knicks, too. I thought that was the easiest matchup to pick, yeah. Um, yeah. essentially saying the Knicks have done so well overachieving in the playoffs that it's hard to hard to squeeze more juice out of that lemon. Uh, in the regular season, overachieving in the regular season. Hard to squeeze more out of that in the playoffs. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, what else? The Anything else in that series jump out to you? The, the, the point to me that I was making about Atlanta's roster with Dave, and I think we're seeing it in this larger trend in the league, is I just liked how many playable offensive players they have on the court. And then you also have Capella. It's a little like what Utah has, right? Where they've yeah. got all this skill, shooting, enough playmaking, and then it's around Gobert. In Atlanta's case, obviously, Clint Capella is not Gobert, but same style of player, uh, gives you a lot of toughness and defense protecting the paint. And then pick your guy, man. I mean, next to Trey, you've got um, Bogdanovich, you've got Kevin Herter can play, John Collins is a good offensive player off the bench. Uh-huh. Off the bench Gallo. now, Gallo, Lou Williams. So it's just a it's a nice collection of guys that when you put them in a playoff environment, they're, they're not going to be amazing. I don't expect them to be world beaters. But to the point of this conversation we're having here, to the trend toward the league, it's like they give you something. They give you firepower, shooting, um, some level of shot creation, things like that. And it, it's, I thought game five, in a way, was the epitome of it, where you can have a road comeback with a relatively inex- inexperienced team in a hostile environment against a higher seed just because you have a ton of offense on the court. I remember they're missing DeAndre Hunter, who was really one of the most improved he, players. Might have yeah. won. Might have won most improved had he – well, they probably would have given it to Julius Randle, but but I think he was up there until he got hurt. Uh, he's a terrific player. He's, he's, you know, he's young. The only thing I'll add is uh, do you have access to Synergy? Can you watch Synergy? I cannot watch Synergy. Okay, so but you can get on YouTube. So I watched Trey Young's uh, possessions this morning, and uh, it's just worth the price of admission, which for me is nothing. I don't have to pay for it. But it's in theory, it's worth it. He, he blows by Simmons or Tybul as if they're stiffs. These are very, very gifted defensive players, 
and he rushes by them like they're standing still. He had one basket in late in the game, late, like down eight, cut it to six, where he beat both of them, Simmons on the drive, uh, Matisse on the help, and then Embiid on the help, and he scored a layup. It's three very good defensive players. And two uh, huge guys, too. Yeah. Yeah, and long. Uh, yeah, Tybul's wingspan is super over seven feet. Um, he's just one of the most gifted offensive players on the planet. He really is, and he's fearless. And uh, he, I tell you what, so Steph Curry is um, obviously revolutionized the sport, but also the game, right? The vice versa, the game and the sport in terms of fan base, whatever, Trey is beloved by young people. So we, as a league and as a sport, we need young people to want to watch these games. Trey Young is the reason why you watch these games. Not Giannis. No one looks like Giannis. Giannis looks like he'll, he'll be on a team playing against LeBron's team in the, in the Toon Squad. Like he's that <laughs> freakishly long. He's amazing. You, you, know, you build him in a lab. You don't build Trey Young and that hair in a lab. Right, but doesn't matter. He is unguardable. What do you bad range? What do you think about that in general? The idea. I mean, we talked about your your basketball fandom growing up, and both of us, you know, seeing something in Magic that resonated. Yeah. What do you think of this age old idea that like big men don't sell snell big men don't sell sneakers? It's really there's a relatability, right? Like Steph, there's a he just looks like a dude that standing next to you in the hardware store versus Giannis, who no pun intended, you know, looks like a Greek statue hanging outside the the Parthenon, the Pantheon, the Parthenon, Parthenon, one, Parthenon. One of those is in Rome, and one of those is in my my European listeners are going to correct me on this, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, what do you think about that? Do you think it's always better for the game? Do you think we can make it? more accessible you know Giannis is such a great player but of course he's not um doesn't have great ball skills per se and and he's so successful with his physical strength it's a little like Shaq it's it's a hard thing to connect to I think for a lot of fans you know I'm the worst I'm happy to try to answer it but I'm the worst guy at that because I I really just am a coach I don't I don't know what fans like um I think fans like drama suspense um uh, energy, intensity. These are, these are what you see in movies that you like. Um, I think that, uh, we just have to keep trying to produce that. We have to keep trying to produce live action guys that care guys that have passion. We can have super intense guys. We can have more guys that like to smile that still want to compete. Like Terrence Mann is one of my favorite players. Cause he smiles all the time. He's trying to kill you. He ducked on Gobert. Like this isn't a soft guy that is smiley. He's a tough guy, an t- intense guy that's smiley. I love that. And um, I, think we need to pr- I think we need to create the game to be fluid and fun and, uh, and get guys who really want to compete, and then I think they'll be okay, we'll be okay as a league. If we get too bogged, bogged down with stopping, 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 free throws and challenges, I think people turn it off. All right. So we got we to gotta work with that. In terms of sneaker stuff, you know, I didn't. My kid loved Trey Young, and all of his buddies loved Trey Young. I think because he was just such a talented scorer. Um, they like bigger guys too. But I know, I know what you said is what everyone thinks. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm just not an expert in that. But uh, well, I, I, I bring it up because how I don't... relatable is anyone to these? I mean, Steph Curry is six uh, three. Like he's tall. He's he's not a small dude. 
but also, I mean, his dad, I mean, he grew up around the NBA. His dad right. was an NBA player. Right. So, yeah. So it's always interesting to see what people quote unquote relate to. Um, and then there are these other periods. Like, so when I was doing the greatest peak series, I did David Robinson for, yeah. uh, for episode seven and David Robinson, there was a period in the early nineties where he was kind of like the golden boy. He was, yeah. you forget about this. He had all these sponsors. He was on the cover of all these magazines. Um, it was very cultural at that time. I think, right? Like the zeitgeist was this big smiling dude. Uh, he had the naval background. He was, he was, you know, kind of like Mr. Rogers on the basketball court, like next right. door happy. Uh, and then that seems like, from a distant galaxy now that seems like an impossible thing hey we're gonna take a seven footer who's smiley and uh doesn't say controversial things ever and he's the most marketable player in the game so I i've always been fascinated about that that idea that they don't sell shoes quote unquote but there does seem to be uh ebbs and flows to what people are sort of attracted to or or resonate with as fans well not to get too deep, but um, well, this come on, it's called thinking basketball. We we have yeah, to. <laughs> the I mean, listen, I I can talk about you know racist America as long as you want. I've been a white man living in this country my whole life, but I've I've been I, I had a second mom who was black. Uh, she was uh, she worked for my family, but she basically helped raise us. Um, I saw the world through her eyes and her family's eyes. I went to her church more than I went to my temple uh, on weekends sometimes, and um, and then I've been coaching basketball since 87 and my first five years with most of my kids were inner city St. Pete from two, two projects. One of which was probably the, at the time, the most crime ridden project in St. Pete, uh, and maybe Pinellas County our counties that over a million people, it's a lot of people. And these were my kids. Like they had to come to my house to study because they didn't have furniture in their house and that kind of thing. And as I got to know them later in life as adults, and they would tell me stories of having to run around gang lines coming home from practice. I didn't know any of that. Mm. Um, I had a, I had a, I had a report that all my players were banned from racks roast beef, which is a fast food chain. That's now thankfully out of business because they had a pickle pickle bar. When you got your hamburger, your, your, your roast beef sandwich. And he took four pickles and some white lady told on him, and my team was now banned from racks. I got that phone call. So, yeah, no surprise that corporate America thought David Robinson who right. played the piano right. and who was smarter exactly. than all of us on the planet, right? More erudite was the face, right? And um, yeah, it's just I I hope I hope that and certainly in this era with of Trumpism uh, that the alternative to that they are the minority. They're loud, but they're the minority. That the rest of us recognize um, that diversity in our culture is what is what makes us best. Uh, I know I certainly feel that way. And uh, and this sport is beautiful for that. I look at pictures of my son on his basketball team and, you know, there's everything on that team. In fact, one of his best friends is Native American and he's a really good player. He's started a point guard this year for a while at Florida State and wants to be involved in minority affairs in his home state of Montana in Indian affairs when he graduates. Like and this kid's hanging out my son every day. I, I'm so happy that my son's getting this experience and everyone whose children are playing sports. My daughter danced at a mostly Latina dance factory. That's not why we chose it. We chose it. For, I don't even know why we chose this particular place, but it turns out most of her friends are all Latina. Fantastic. And um, this is what sports can do for us. Uh, uh, and if people don't want to embrace that, that's on them. The rest of us have to go about living our lives and appreciate it that way. 
And I think that's the beauty of things like sports and music and dance, whatever, is for those of us who are, have our eyes open, aren't ignorant, we, it just makes us all better. And so I don't know who the next guy is going to be, right? Zion, uh, maybe. Um, you know, Curry, LeBron, it's pretty hard to top those two following Kobe, right? I don't know who it's going to be. Luca certainly is going to appeal to a certain segment. He, he's incredible. Like, what a great player. I really like Trey and what he what he presents, what he represents. That dude, um, well, first of all, let me say this. It's wrong of us to talk about this, Ben, without recognizing this. These guys are not just great athletes or super tall, long guys like Giannis. And that requires a lot of work to get there. Uh, have you ever watched any of the Marvel movies or the DC comic movies like Wonder Woman? I, I am familiar with those pictures, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you know how in The Flash or Wonder Woman, she... They can watch the bullet going through. Like I, my, I watch all these movies with my kids, right? So their their brains are in real reality. Their brains are processing so fast. Everything is slow motion. That's how Trey Young plays. That's how LeBron James plays. That's how Chauncey Billups played. Yeah, uh, it's the superhero Paul, idea. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. they they just are seeing things so much faster. Kyle Lowry is processing so much faster than anyone. It, and it doesn't matter what their skin color is or what country they're from. Luca. Luca's doing it too. That's these guys are making passes. In fact, we're collecting this at True Hoop. We, uh, it's called genius passes, and these are just passes that I don't even see when I'm watching the game live, and I'm not playing, and I see everything. I can read the matrix, but I don't even see necessarily these things coming. If I do, I don't tend to call them genius. It's when I don't even see them, I'm blown away, and these guys do it routinely. That's world fast processing in brains, right? And um, I need to respect that. And uh, if they can add skill and all of that, even better. If they're super tall and like LeBron, whatever, great. Um, I, I want to keep embracing not just diversity, but the amount of diversity. We want we want to get as many young people playing basketball as we can globally and let the cream rise. Give everyone a chance. Don't just keep – when you know, I was the first guy to kind of employ Masai Ujiri in America. And, and he came over and, and met with me. And I just been some college coaches, whatever. And he's very interested in building Africa basketball, African basketball. And I said, you got to cast a wide net. Stop just coaching the top players at 12, 13, 14. Get everyone to come so the late blooming kid isn't left behind like David Robinson. Right. You can't afford to leave a David Robinson back there. Or, or Hakeem or Embiid or. Right. Yeah. yeah just, they're late blooming guys. They're Joakim Noah wasn't McDonald's All-American. He won two national titles and defensive player of the year award. Yeah. The guys bloom late. We AD went to Kentucky. I get it, but it wasn't like he was a great offensive player in ninth grade at six foot two. We have to just cast a wide net, get as many kids as possible. Uh, that's the best thing for our game. And and those that want to hate, we you know we just really can't give them much voice. I don't know where to go after that. That was a that was a very impassioned. Um, I, let me say this because yeah. we could we could probably I mean this could be a whole separate podcast. But I think over the years, the thing I realized that I love the most, there are many things I love about basketball. But one of the things I love the most is that it reflects, it's a microcosm of our entire society or the idea of a society, and that it reflects the tension between an individual and a group. There's a certain amount of like isolation scoring, right? There's a certain amount of pressure an individual exerts on a defense, for instance, with his ability to handle the ball, shoot, uh, first step, get to the paint, whatever it is, but then you can't do it alone. 
you absolutely need to find the right way to connect with the other players on the court. And I think sort of my perspective when I was younger and, and didn't know quite as much was, oh, there's a guy named Wilt. He scored 50 points per game. I mean, it's 50, 50 points per game. He must have been the best <laughs> player ever by like such a landslide. <laughs> And and then over the years, you're watching and you're going like, now, now, wait a second. Why does Rodman keep playing? And why does Rodman keep doing things that are really good? And why does everyone think Rodman's really good? And it's like, oh, all those other things support each other. So defense supports offense. Passing supports scoring. Rebounding supports, you know, what, whatever it is. Playmaking, um, the, the shot didn't work, right? Like the Kobe rebound, something to take us back to True Hoop and Henry, right? Like that idea is he's actually collapsing the defense, but he ends up shooting it. But that makes the offensive rebounding opportunity more easy. So if you have a guy on the court that can play that role, then you create a synergy. Basketball is all about being greater than the sum of the parts and i think there's some very interesting thing that could be its own book or podcast series or whatever on how that kind of actually reflects the organic tension of working together in a group so did you know that i wrote a book a basketball is jazz yeah which so which is how i view it yeah exactly you just described my book i know i fantastic do that the basketball is jazz is a book really more as more of a memoir really let stories and lessons from my life but um yeah, this is the do too much, and the other bandmates are like, well, this, this motherfucker, you know, he, he, he's not fun to play with, right? Do too little, and they can replace you. So that's the tension you're talking about. And uh, knowing, you know, this is where veterans really have an, have an advantage of, of just knowing how to stay in their lane. The mistake too many veterans make, though, is they think, this is who I am, and I can never change. And so that makes it even more difficult is, okay, here's who I am now. But if I can add my three-point shot, I can add a little more ball handling, improve my defense, whatever, I can take on a bigger role somewhere else and make more money, well, you should do that. But it's hard once you get a role to do that. So this, the guys like Joe Ingles are, are pretty rare. You know, Everyone thought they knew who Joe was. They didn't. He's better than that, right? Uh, and so we can, a lot of guys, I mean, the, I love Tobias Harris when he entered the NBA at, at 18. He's, I don't think he's 30 yet. He's been in the league like 17 years. <laughs> Um, it's like he got in there after his bar mitzvah, so he's you've been so long, right? <laughs> um, you gotta you gotta keep reinventing yourself a little bit, unless you're in a perfect situation with your skill set uh, and meshed with everyone else's, and your role just always stays the same. Kind of PJ Tucker is always the same, right? Um, but I think that's the beauty of the sport too: is the fight to be even better, to make more money, which they're allowed to do. I like them doing it, and uh, but also knowing they have a role and can play that role well because. Also, when you want your team to win, that's that's the bottom line. Let's uh, let's bring it back full circle to to wrap up um, reinventing yourself. The Bucks, they have only played Giannis at center for something like thirty seven minutes in this whole series, and they did it more last night. Do we see more of that in Game Seven? Should we see more of that? In Game Seven, uh, it, by the way, I have it here. In the 37 minutes in the series, they've outscored Brooklyn 90 to 77. That would be plus 19 per 100 possessions. Um, what do you think about this? So, first of all, I'm not at all arguing your stat. You know as well as I do that in that few minutes, you know, guys uh, might sure. miss 11. Yeah, 11. Yeah, it's 37 minutes. It's, uh, but still, it's it's a valuable stat to cite. I only say it for anyone that is that is a, a stat novice like don't think that's necessarily meaningful it might be right we'd have to watch the 
possessions. But I think it's a great point that you made. And um, I'd like to see, yes, I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to see them uh, not be conventional in game seven on the road against KD. What I think they should do is attack them all the time. Double them early, bring different spots, try to steal it, like I said before. Uh, uh, He is going to kill you in the fourth quarter, probably because he's KD, unless you just wear him out. He's played 48 and 44 minutes, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 48 and 40 last two games. But his uh, his and, and all credit to him just for being a warrior and, and amazing playing those minutes. It's it's very Great. old school, you know, to the to the conversation we're having. But he has an economy of his movement throughout the game that I think makes it very manageable. You know, he basically probably just says to Steve, like, I'm going to I'm going to go as long as I can or go the whole way. And he, to your point, doesn't look worn down in the fourth quarter because of that. Uh, just economy of motion. I do think I'm with you, by the way. I I think that Milwaukee, they got a little too stagnant in the last couple games, just especially when Drew's on them, just saying like, all right, well, we're fine with him going to work from the elbow pinch post area and playing one-on-one against Drew. But Brooklyn is even more fine with that. Brooklyn's like, okay, right? Like if that's how you're going to play this, we're going to do this all night. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they have to mix it up more, tell Drew to challenge him more, try different guys on him and run second guys on him, including Giannis. Um, I don't care if Giannis starts on him, but he should probably end on him sometimes as a double, uh, just being aggressive. Uh, I think Milwaukee needs to be – the mistake Milwaukee will make is be afraid that if they try something and fail and they lose, they'll have blown their chance. uh, they They need to be more of the innovators, I think, on the road against KD and Harden. Hard's a genius. He's not playing great because of all that happened, but still a genius. Uh, and I picked the Bucks to win in six or seven. I always do like four or five or six, seven. And so I had the Bucks winning this series. In part because I figured there's no way the, the Nets are going to be healthy for all seven games. I just, I just didn't see any, any reason to believe that would be the case. One of those three was going down, and it turned out it was Kyrie. Um, I don't typically bet on injuries, but I didn't bet, guess on injuries. That seemed like a pretty low-hanging fruit one, though, and, and it obviously was right. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, ex- I, I'd like, I also, because I'm old school, I want the Bucks to be rewarded and not the Nets because the Nets didn't try on defense all year. They barely played together all year. They collected a bunch of really good, you know, quote unquote AAU players in the sense of just having talent like each other. And it's not fair if they win the championship. I want there to be, <laughs> I want the cohesive five guys connecting in the bench to matter. On the other hand, you know, I actually thought Brooklyn had a great chance to win it all because no team is healthy. So if that's the case and the Nets end up being healthy, I thought they could win. But um, I think it'll be great. I think both games will be great. I think I think the Jazz could easily win game six uh, if Donovan's healthy. I just – I don't trust that he is. I think the Clippers have a much better chance because I think Donovan's tapped out. Yeah, that, out. That, that ankle is uh... – is, yeah, is real real concern. He's in pain all the time, right? Exactly, and and just the the expl- you know he's such an explosive player. The I talked about it before he injured the ankle at the beginning of the series. His his mastery of that short space, that first action, unbelievable, unreal, and 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 what we've talked about today, not just athletically explosive, but his reads and his reaction time on that. Uh, open up so much for him and then you give him that ankle and it's like oh you've you've um in baseball you've put a a donut on the bat or something right it's like yeah that's what that's what it looks like um he's amazing yeah coach appreciate it fun conversation 
we we zigged and zagged we went all over we we who knows who knows if people tuned out when we got too philosophical uh but hopefully they're still with us here at the end appreciate you taking the time anything you want to plug or point people to uh, that you're working on these days no just yeah check out if you love basketball and you like a little um off the court stuff too henry abbott is doing a series on on the billionaires in our league in the world and it's it's going to be a, a movie or a TV show, in my opinion, one day. It's so breathtaking what he's doing. I do more on-the-court stuff, analysis, and Gerard Hector does some really great videos. But go to Troop.com and subscribe. And every every team in the league subscribes. Every media member pretty much subscribes to major uh, outlets. Um, I'm very proud of that. Very, very proud that every team has lots of subscribers, actually, and the league itself. So we're writing important stuff if, for those that are really serious about basketball, and uh, we'd love to have you. Remember, you can get that 10% off at Hawthorne.co with the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL. Check that out. That's a great way to support this podcast. The best way to support all things Thinking Basketball is to head on over to Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball. Over there, we have live monthly Q&As. We have our playoff daily stats, proprietary stats that are updating every day throughout the playoffs. We also have additional content articles extra videos things like that patreon.com slash thinking basketball hope you enjoyed this one thanks for listening all the way to the end as always and man i hope you are enjoying these wild and crazy playoffs and that wherever you're listening you are having a great day